Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. I did want to mention that this month we are celebrating the 13th anniversary of the Yoga Hour, which was founded by our spiritual director, Yogacharya O'Brien. The premiere episode, Fulfill Your Divine Destiny, was on September 23rd, 2010. Today, we're going to be discussing lessons that we as modern seekers can draw from the book, Autobiography of a Yogi. We're going to explore how universal yoga principles can be used to address challenges and issues of the present, such as the diversions of social media and the quick pace of contemporary life. My guest today is Rizwan Virk. Rizwan is a graduate of MIT and Stanford, a successful entrepreneur, investor, futurist, video game industry pioneer, indie film producer, and best-selling author. Rizwan Virk writes on the intersection of science, science fiction, business, and spirituality. His latest book, which we will be discussing today, is Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. Rizwan Virk's website is zenentrepreneur.com, zenentrepreneur.com. On Facebook, he is at zenentrepreneur. And on Twitter, or now X, he is at Riz Stanford. Once again, Rizwan Virk, welcome to the Yoga Hour. It's wonderful to have you a guest, as a guest to discuss your new book. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's great, great to be here. Before we begin our dialogue about universal yoga principles and how they can help us in today's world, let's begin with a moment of contemplation, a yoga moment. Let's begin as we mean to go on. So let's take this moment to bring ourselves fully present, just feeling our body in space, whatever we're doing, whether we're sitting or standing, walking, driving, just feeling our body in space, feeling our feet wherever they are, and then turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling how that air is now warm. Continuing to stay with our breath, here is something to contemplate. From Yogacharya O'Brien, the, the Yoga Hour's founder and spiritual director from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. We are in the midst of the divine play. The divine friend continually invites us to see a larger view of this life we are living. Clues and prompts are everywhere. When we pay attention, we discover it. Life is holy. Heaven is here. 
Once again, Rizwan Firk, welcome to the Yoga Hour. As I said, I'm delighted to have you on to discuss your new book, Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. For those who aren't aware, Autobiography of a Yogi by Paramahansa Yogananda is definitely number one recommended reading for everyone that's associated with the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, the sponsor of this program. Roy Eugene Davis, an American yogi, was a direct disciple of Paramahansa Yogananda and was the teacher of my teacher, Yogacharya O'Brien. Riz, as you mentioned, the autobiography of a yogi has been hugely influential, the global impact, which is actually pretty remarkable that it has extended as far as it has past Yogananda's uh, transition, his transition from this life, which he made in 1952. So it's a long time ago. In your book, the focus that I really appreciate is the lessons that the autobiography contains that are so relevant for seekers today. And one of them that I wanted to start out with, which is titled, Sometimes the Universe Unexpectedly Gives You an Important Task. You talk about how Yogananda eventually accepted his task of bringing yoga and meditation to the West, despite his longing from a young age to do something very different. His initial longing was to be a monk and to be in a cave up in the Himalayas. I was especially struck by the story of how the task of writing this book actually illustrated this lesson in your own life. But first, for those listeners who are not familiar with the autobiography of a yogi, would you share a little bit more about how Yogananda was given this task that I mentioned of bringing yoga to the West and how he eventually accepted it? Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, as you mentioned, uh, when Yogananda was a boy, you know, he had this vision of these yogis meditating in the Himalayas and he asked them, you know, who are you? And they told him very clearly, we are the yogis of the Himalayas. And from that moment forward, you know, he had this kind of desire to run away to the Himalayas. And, you know, there's a number of colorful stories uh, for those who haven't read the autobiography. And even for those who have, you'll remember uh, where he, as a boy, he just kept trying to run away from home because he thought his spiritual destiny, you know, was off somewhere in the caves in the Himalayas. And even after, you know, he had met his guru, Sri Yukteswar, even then he still tried to run away <laughs> to the Himalayas until he finally got the, you know, got got the, the message from uh, Ram Gopal Mazumdar, who uh, Yogananda calls the, uh, the sleepless saint, <laughs> that, you know, do you have a little bit of space? you know, in the attic to meditate, then let that be your cave, right? Let right. that be your Himalayas, yeah. right? And, and so, you know, I think he eventually accepted that. And that was, you know, sort of the first lesson that kind of underlies the second lesson that we talked about, which is that sometimes the universe, you know, gives us a task. And, you know, this also lesson was true for many people. They thought they had to go far away to, to find, you know, spiritual growth, but it was sometimes found closer to home. I mean, Steve Jobs went all the way to India when he was a young man, right, looking for spiritual enlightenment. And what did he find in his dorm room but a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi, <laughs> you know, which he then brought back to the U.S. And Yogananda, of course, lived his adult life, you know, since 1920 until he, he passed on uh, in the 50s uh, in the U.S. And so that was yet another example where people thought they had to go far away. And then it became Steve Jobs, you know, favorite book and he gave it out and, 
at his funeral, he gave it out to, uh, you know, everybody that attended the memorial service got a little brown box and they went home and opened it. And it was a copy of Autobiography of a Yogi. And, and so I think, you know, that that's an important lesson uh, is that sometimes our destiny finds us, you know, where we are. And we often have a glimpse of what we're supposed to do in life, but we don't always have the specifics right. You know, I, I, I personally, if you had asked me in high school what I was going to do, I said, well, I'm going to be a computer software entrepreneur and then I'm going to be a writer which is kind of what happened, right? How did I know that? I kind of had a glimpse, but I was wrong about the timing. I thought I was going to become a full-time writer when I was 28, but when it took me until I was 48, <laughs> two decades later, before I really you know, focused all of my attention on my writing. <clears throat> and so, you know, this getting back to then your, your, <clears throat> your question about Yogananda, you know, he was meditating behind some boxes in the storage room at the Ranchi school where he was teaching, you know, young boys, uh, yoga and education based on Vedic principles. And he had this vision of uh, these Caucasian faces. Uh, and he assumed they were Americans, even though he had never met an American before. Uh, and, you know, sometimes we get a clue like that. That's an internal clue. Uh, and then he basically said, announced that he was going to be going to America. And he went back to Calcutta and he got an invitation to go speak at the, the I think it was the World Congress of Religions. It was a, a religious conference to represent Hinduism in Boston in 1920. And then he took the first boat, you know, out of India after World War One, which they called the Great War, to do that. Now, at that time, he wasn't totally sure he should go. Well, I mean, it was pretty far away. Um, Yogananda was not probably the best qualified person to take on this task, right? He was a young <laughs> Swami, relatively unknown. He even said to his master, you know, I've rarely given a public talk. And guess how many talks he had given in English? Zero. <laughs> right? wow. And in fact, he'd only had two years of, of, of college, which he only completed because his guru made him complete those two years of college. He just wanted to go off. And so, you know, yet in the end, he accepted this task that the universe had put in front of him. And it became, you know, not just a one time trip to go to Boston and speak at this conference. It became his lifelong task. Now, there were hints that this might be a task that was going to come to him in the future. Uh, when he was younger, uh, through his guru and through Babaji, who was, you know, Yogananda's uh, kind of the, the head of the lineage who came from the Himalayas. And we can talk about that a little bit later as well. But, you know, it, it, sometimes when the universe gives us a task, it doesn't mean there won't be difficulties. Uh, right. He had many difficulties, but he chose to take on that task. And so, you know, that that's the story of, uh, you know, how he eventually ended up here. And then, you know, he, he ended up becoming a wandering monk, but not in the Himalayas. He ended up becoming a wandering monk in America, right? And on planes and trains, uh, not a planes, trains and automobiles. Because, you know, they didn't have too many planes back then. <laughs> yeah, no, really. So you've, you've kind of um, obliquely referred to some of these rules, but in the book, you provide some important rules in this chapter, rules to follow when clues are presented to you about this important task in your life. So one of them is like these clues start, you know, yeah. like popping up. And I think another one is, you know, about the, the difficulties, you know, that you mentioned. But can you just say more about that? Yeah. And so this lesson is related to, you know, this, this, uh, the lesson that we were just talking about, which is sometimes the universe gives you an unexpected task. Uh, and that usually, you know, if you think of life like an Indiana Jones adventure, right? If you think of like the movie Raiders <laughs> of the Lost Ark, and of course, we just had the fifth Indiana Jones film come out this summer, uh, you know, wouldn't it be nice? 
at the beginning of the of the movie, they just gave him the map and said, here it is. There's the Ark of the Covenant. Go get it, right? Well, it wouldn't be that interesting, right, of a movie to watch. It would be kind of boring, right? And life is like that in that our treasure, which may in fact just be the things we were meant to do in this life or the people that we were meant to do with it, uh, we don't get all of that information up front, right? We get one clue and that clue leads us to the next clue and that leads us to the next clue. And you saw here in the case of Yogananda, he had an internal clue, which was the vision. Uh, Then he had an external validation of that internal clue. And a clue can come in the form of a hunch, doesn't have to be as clear of a vision as Yogananda had. Or or it could come in the form of something that's like a deja vu, or a synchronicity. A synchronicity is defined as a meaningful coincidence. Uh, and usually that means, I, I like to think of a clue, a synchronicity as a perfect clue because it's both an internal thought that you're having and an external event which validates the thought, right? You can go back to Jung's original stories about synchronicity where a woman had a dream of an Egyptian scarab. And just as she was telling him about the dream, this this beetle, something like hit the, the window and he opened it up and in came this beetle, which is about the closest you can get to an Egyptian scarab in Europe. And he said, there's your scarab. And that somehow helped her open up her therapy, right? Wow. And so it was it was subjective to her, but there was an objective element. And so, you know, this also transitions to how I came to write this book, which you asked about earlier, yeah. Uh, which, you know, for me is interesting because it kind of parallels, you know, Yogananda giving, getting this task. Uh, in, in this case, I wasn't planning to write a book about Yogananda. My previous books were about business and spirituality and about science and spirituality. You know, I wrote a book called The Simulation Hypothesis, which I'm, ties into this book, this idea that life is a video game. Uh, and then I went through a series of health issues, which I can talk more about later. But because I was on the couch for a number of months, I did something I do every few years. I reread Autobiography of a Yogi and I, you know, really enjoyed it. And I said, okay, what do I do now? What do I read next? And I wrote a series of essays online about, you know, why I liked Autobiography of a Yogi. And I'll be honest, you know, when the first time I read it, I was just amazed with all the stories of the, the swamis and the miracles and levitating saints and the saint with two bodies and all of these things. Uh, but then as I reread it, I started to see a lot of the, you know, the spiritual lessons that were embedded you know, within these stories. And so I did that. And I guess I had planted a seed because uh, then I forgot about it. And uh, as I got my health improved, I started doing other things. And I got an email from HarperCollins India saying that it's the 75th anniversary of when Autobiography of a Yogi was released, which was in 1946. And, you know, this was in uh, 2021. So a few years ago. And they said, you know, we'd like to write, uh, we'd like to publish a book uh, because Yogananda is more popular than ever here, <laughs> that, you know. The, but we'd like to write a book about lessons that you've learned and how people in the modern world who are used to technology, computers, social media, video games can think about these crazy stories and what lessons you know they can impart from it. And so at first I was like, "Are you sure you want me to write this book?" Right? <laughs> you know, I'm <laughs> so classic. I'm not a swami. You know, I'm not a renunciant. Uh, I write about business. I do write about spirituality, but more about its intersection, you know, with the modern world. And uh, I'm not even a Hindu technically, right? I, I, I was born in Pakistan near Lahore, which where Yogananda spent some time when he was, uh, he was a little baby. And there's a story of the magic amulet that takes place uh, in, in Lahore in, in an autobiography. But then I had, so that was the external invitation. And then I had an internal sensation, sort of this electric sensation 
that suddenly, you know, I, I was like super excited because I said, let me think about it. And, and then with that, that internal sensation is a kind of clue that perhaps this is something that I was meant to do. Uh, and so I didn't want to overthink it. I wanted to follow the intuition and clue uh, to go ahead. And, 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 I, and, you know, the fact is that I did write the book and now it's been, it was released in India first. It's actually, it's actually become a bestseller there. It's, uh, you know, at the airports, you can see it on the bestseller shelves. Uh, and now we've released it here in the, in the U.S. as well. And oh. so just trying to get the word out about it. Oh, that's so great. What a great story. This um, this idea that you put forth of, of, of this process where we get these clues and we follow them to our, you know, to our treasure, which as you said, maybe just kind of figuring out like, what is it that we're supposed to be doing in this, in this lifetime? So it really reminded me of both the process of, we get these hints sometimes about sort of the way that we're living and changes that we need to make in our lives. And that to me is more about our Dharma, you know, like the following the path of like right livelihood, right living, like we're, you know, where we need to be consistent with what we most deeply believe, but also finding one's Svadharma, which is uh, which is an individual Dharma. It's that individual thing that we are uh, are supposed to be doing with our life. And we've, you know, in general, we may not have realized it, but we probably have accumulated just like like, you know, you mentioned it, it may not look necessarily from the outside, like these are the perfect set of tools to be able to tackle this, you know, this task or whatever. But it turns out that a lot of times it is, you know, the perfect preparation. So one of the later lessons in the book delves deeper into finding help and following clues. So would you comment more about finding clues and maybe how that might relate to finding adjusting our life so that it's more consistent with our dharma or finding that role that our perfect like job that we're you know job in a big sense not and not necessarily i mean it can be your job like that they pay you to do but it also can just be your role in the world yeah absolutely and so you know one of the things i lay out in in, in this book uh because i feel that yogananda followed his intuition right very very much so and uh you know his his answer was often to just sit and meditate on <laughs> uh, on a problem when it happened. I mean, he was also a real go-getter. Uh, and in that sense, you know, I felt that he was really a bridge between kind of the the, the ancient Eastern traditions and the modern uh, Western kind of frenetic activity that we have in the West. But, you know, one of the first rules of following the clues is, uh, is does it repeat, right? Is it something that happens off more than once and that is how you get validation for the clue right so you know yogananda might have seen uh this image of uh, these caucasian faces but if the uh, you know the invitation didn't come right then perhaps it wasn't the right time for that doesn't mean it wasn't a valid clue sometimes we get a glimpse of something that's going to happen much further in the future so there's a story when yogananda finally made it you know, he was still Mukunda, I believe, at this point, and he, and he finally made it to the Himalayas. <laughs> he finally made it to Kashmir. He actually spent, as many many people have pointed out, including his biographers, he spent very little time in the Himalayas, even though you know that's kind of we associate a lot of the stories that uh, that he he told us. And he finally made it to Kashmir and Srinagar, and there he was at the temple uh, of Shankara. Uh, uh, there in the mountains, beautiful, picturesque, and he, he just fell into this meditative state. And when he did, he saw this image of another uh, uh, headquarters up on of a building up on a hill, right? Mm -hmm. And that was a clue of a building 
for the future, but it would be many, many years, if not a couple of decades before he actually saw that building in real life. And then he recognized it. And even though he didn't have the money, right, this is something you really learn when you when you read about his life, not so much in the autobiography, but you have to read about his biography, uh, where, you know, he was constantly struggling with these issues of money and, and how would he scrape together enough money to buy this building. And yet, because he had this intuition, he had right. seen the building. He knew it was the right thing to do. And it, it was, in fact, the right thing to do. And that was, you know, the Mount Washington headquarters of the original organization he set up, SRF. And I actually hadn't visited that, that building until just very recently. And I can see why he was so so enamored with it. But but that's an example where clues may repeat themselves over time. Sometimes they indicate a direction. And sometimes they indicate timing. Rarely both. If they indicate both, then that, those are clues that you definitely, you know, want to follow at that point in time. And so, you know, sometimes they're just small things, but often they relate to our, what I like to call our karmic scripts. Right? These are things that we might have decided to do in this life, but we also have the ability to change the script. So, you know, we also have the ability to make choices or not. I mean, Yogananda could have chosen not to come to the U.S. He spent a lot of time, you know, uh, consulting with people. Uh, his guru with the levitating saint, Baduri Mahashai, uh, and many others, you know, who was actually incidentally one of the first who had kind of uh, for not foretold, but kind of, uh, uh, you know, hinted at that <laughs> Yogananda might have something to do with America because when Yogananda was a kid, Magunda, he was called, he would go for, to what he called these afternoon pilgrimages to the levitating saints. And I believe those afternoon pilgrimages made a huge impact on, on him. And in one of those, he, you know, the saint pointed to a series of letters uh, from America. Uh, and he said that, you know, people in the West are interested in enlightenment. And, and Mukunda suggested, you know, Swamiji, you should write a book. Right? And 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 he said, no, uh, my disciples are are my legacy. But even Yogananda himself says in the autobiography that this may have planted the seed, you know, um, for both his trip as well as his uh, and and you know, in addition to consulting his guru Sri Yukteswar, he consulted the levitating saint before yeah. he left to ask him, you know, whether he should go or not, uh, just yeah. before he left. Yeah. And you talk about, you've already mentioned, but I just wanted to reiterate, it doesn't necessarily mean that the path will be totally clear. Um, there are oftentimes obstacles, you know, that that come up. And then it's interesting to see what happens, you know, with the obstacles, you know, if they persist or if they or if they melt away. Did you want to comment more about that? Yeah, that's actually a really important lesson, right? Is that sometimes we have a task or a job to do, and there are lots of obstacles in the way. And sometimes the obstacles melt away and other times they don't. And sometimes it means it's not the right timing. Uh, and so this is a very difficult thing, you know, for us rationally to figure out. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, Yogananda says in the autobiography, you know, intuition is soul guidance, right? Coming to man naturally in the times when our mind is calm. And so going back to his life task, which was to go to America, he accepted it. But that didn't mean there were, weren't a huge number of obstacles. Right. I mean, even just the, there was no place on the boat. First of all, it was the first boat that had gone <laughs> to America right. after the war. Secondly, there were no berths available. Thirdly, he didn't have a visa. Fourthly, he didn't have the money. <laughs> right. And, and there was a short period of time. And, but then, you know, as he meditated, 
uh, these obstacles started to melt away and, and he persisted. So it's not like you could just meditate. And sometimes we read the autobiography and we think, oh, Yogananda had this charm in life, which of course he did. But it looks like he just asked Divine Mother for X or Y and he just gets it and there are no obstacles. But, you know, the obstacles didn't stop once he was able to get the means to go on the ship itself. There's the story of, you know, where he was asked to give a talk on the battle of life and you know, he couldn't think of a thing to say and he stood there for 10 minutes, right? Uh, and it was his first talk in English. But then he asked for help, right? And that's part of the mm. process here is you ask for help. He asked for help and he heard the voice of his guru. Uh, and, you know, when he was younger, when when the, the doctors couldn't do anything for him for his Asiatic cholera, cholera you know, he, he asked for help from a photo of Lahiri Mahashai. And so he often asked for help from the gurus of his lineage, from the Divine Mother, uh, whatever temple he was at. Uh, and, and that's an important part as well, because it lets us kind of place the problems, you know, on to uh, so perhaps a higher power. And then, you know, we then have to watch what happens and see what clues we get back. But so setbacks are very much a part of his story. I mentioned his aforementioned uh, issues with uh, with with money and trying to make the mortgage for this giant hotel that he bought, which he didn't have the money to buy, and he would scrape together enough money to make those mortgage payments, which eventually they you know they paid off. But uh, while he was in America, and he doesn't really cover this in autobiography, you know there was a huge scandal involving his number two guy, Swami Dirananda, who was his 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 like very close friend from the time they were kids. Uh, you know, Dirananda would come over to meditate at Yogananda's place uh, because he didn't have any room at his own place. And that's how far back they went. And, you know, there was this huge scandal where some husband of one of the women that were, you know, taking classes with Dirananda came and hit him on the on the nose because he thought there was something untoward going on because, you know, there were a lot of women students in dark rooms and chanting. And, you know, even today, you know, if you go to yoga class in the U.S., it's overwhelmingly women, right? And Yogananda was in Miami, uh, was going to Miami for a talk when this happened. And and the story went what we would call viral today, right? The Hearst newspapers, they, they talked about how, you know, the Swami got, you know, bopped on the nose because he was doing something. I mean, there was, not, there was nothing in there untoward that, that, that was actually going on, but it spread like wildfire. And Yogananda had had to cancel his, his Miami appearance because all the husbands of the women that were going to go to the to the class we're going to literally beat him up and so the police canceled they said we have to cancel this and so that led to a greater you know a greater problem for him when his organization fell apart Dirananda left and he went to Mexico and he meditated and said you know lord this is too difficult I just want to go home to India and meditate in a cave in the Himalayas right that's that's all I wanted to do bringing you know yoga to you know these westerners is just maybe too difficult but you know, again, the answer was that that was his life task, uh, and and but he went, and 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 went went about it differently after that. And sometimes our setbacks that happen are actually part of our story. That's another lesson that I have in the book, because later he began to look for ways to not have to like run around the country all the time, right? I mean, he 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 would be what we call a frequent flyer, although there were it wasn't on planes. He would have like hundreds of thousands of frequent train miles if they had those. Right. But after that, uh, you know, when he came back from India in 1935, 36, he ended up spending pretty much the next decade uh, in the Encinitas Hermitage, you know, writing Autobiography of a Yogi. And, and that was a different way 
to reach many, many more people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I believe, I mean, we don't know this for certain, but I believe that was born out of all yeah. these things that had happened. And as he looked, he concentrated on fewer students, but then he made sure he got his word out to the world. And that's what happened. I mean, that book has had more of an impact than he could have had personally. Uh, exactly. He just couldn't have met that many people, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So you've already, again, sort of obliquely referred to this, but I did want to ask you more specifically about these fantastical stories, you know, that he shares. So you have mentioned the, you know, I think levitation, there's bilocation, you know, one person appearing in two locations at the same time, telepathy, etc. And what's interesting is that when people read Autobiography of a Yogi, they kind of have one of two responses to that. They either really cast doubt on the whole book, I'm not reading this anymore, this is ridiculous, or on the other hand, it makes them even more interested (laughs) in the message of the book, so so it makes them like more eager to read the rest of it. So um, can you give an example, because you really go into these in uh, in your book, can you give an example of a story um, that, has a lesson for today's readers. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I go into a lot of detail on, on, on a few of these stories that I've kind of picked out because there's so many. Uh, I, I could have made my book twice as long if I wanted to go. Uh, but one of the things I wanted to do was to make it an introduction to Autobiography of Yogi, which is 500 pages long. Uh, and so, you know, one of the stories, and so I was one of those who read these stories. And at first I was like, did that really happen? But I was one of the ones who, who, for whom it made me more interested in reading the book again and learning more about the cities uh, or superpowers, as I call them, is, is what we would call them today. And it's interesting today that superheroes, right, which is a Western kind of, uh, you know, version of the cities, these stories have now made their way back to India and have caught on. And, you know, there's like a there's like an Indian Spider-Man that was in the recent, uh, you know, Into the Spider-Verse movie. In fact, they just met the guy who was part of the team that created the Indian Spider-Man who has now, you know, come, come out in the uh, in the West as well. Uh, but, you know, these superpowers are interesting for a few reasons. You know, of course, you know, Yogananda included them in the book to open people's minds, right? Because in the West, there was not this tradition, right? These stories were perhaps not so sensational there, but here they were. And so they opened our minds. And even myself, you know, I, I, w- I went to MIT and read this book shortly after I had graduated. And so I spent a lot of time with very left brain people and the materialistic view of the universe. And it definitely opened my mind to say, well, maybe there's more possibilities here, right? And so, you know, let's, there's two stories that I could go into, one of which is about the two bodies, the same with multiple bodies. Another would be the, the, the story of the jinn or the genie, as I call them, uh, the story of Hazrat that would make objects disappear. But sometimes these, these stories also have a karmic lesson right. that's embedded within them. And sometimes Yogananda got accused of basically putting, putting out stories like the Arabian Nights, right? Uh, and, and some of these stories, in fact, let me start with a story about the genie, as I call them. Uh, because I think that was an interesting one. And in that story, there's a, a Mohammedan uh, a holy man, or fakir, as they're called, who, when he was younger, uh, helped out this uh, this older uh, Hindu yogi, uh, who then said, okay, because of your past karma, I'll give you uh, this, this yogic uh, technique, and you can learn to control an invisible entity called Hazra. Right. Uh, which and then what Hazrat does is Hazrat can go and get objects from anywhere and make them appear and disappear. Uh, and he said, but, uh, you know, you have to be careful how you use this. And so what, ha- what, what happened? 
this guy, Afzal Khan, started using it for, you know, personal gain, right? right? He would use it to go into jewelry stores and he would touch a bunch of jewelry and he would step out and tell Hazrat to go get those. And they would disappear long after he had left the store and somehow, you know, they would appear in his possession. But and so people began to fear this guy. They called him the terror of Bengal, right? Railway station tickets. He would just show up in his hands after he had, you know, kind of touched them. And, and so they would disappear. And, you know, this sounds like a fantastical story, right? Uh, it's, in fact, it sounds like it's right out of the Arabian Nights, which is why, right, you know, right. given the Islamic tradition, what I call Hazrat was, was most likely a genie or a jinn, as, you know, as we call them in the Islamic traditions. Um, and then later... Uh, what happened was as Afzal Khan, you know, saw this old man with a limp and the old man said, all I have is this little gold ball. Can you help me heal my limp? You're a yogi. And instead of healing the limp, he touched the gold ball. He walked away and then told Hazrat to make it disappear and appear. And first the old man protested, but then he realized the old man is the same yogi that had taught him the technique in the first place. And then he basically said, "You've been, you, the rumors are true. You've been using this for self-gain. And he took away his ability to control Hazrat. You know? So what, what should a modern seeker think, right? Could right. this really have happened? Or is this just a story? And I say, well, it's a bit of both, right? So Yogananda tells it to us in a way that he believes it happened. Why? Because the dorm room, you know, where he was, where he was staying, uh, near Serampore College, his guru, Sri Yukteswar, walked in and said he had seen and met Afzal Khan right in that very room, right? He goes, and wow. that's how the story starts. I saw him perform four miracles. And one of the miracles was uh, that he made all these plates of gold filled with a giant feast fall from the ceiling so that the group, you know, who uh, he had uh, done some shady things like <laughs> gotten one of his wristwatches or something, uh, you know, he had used Hazrat's powers in a bad way, then he used them in a good way. Uh, and so Yogananda wants us to believe it really happened, but it sounds like the kind of story you would see in the Arabian Nights. And so, you know, one question we can ask ourselves is, are there other instances of stories like this? And there are, you know, there are other instances of stories very similar to this from other, uh, you know, both Indian gurus, but also within the Islamic traditions as well, where objects, you know, appear and disappear like this. And and so, you know, because of that, uh, it's very possible that the story happened just like it did. But perhaps the, the more important aspect of this story is this is a karmic story. This is a karmic right. lesson for us, right? Because not only did, did he get the, those superpowers, but he was told that in previous lives, Afzal Khan had a, a tendency to be avaricious, to be greedy. Now, if you were going to set up a test, right, for someone who, uh, about whether they're going to be greedy or not, what better way to set up a test for them than to give them a magical ability to get any object, any piece of gold, any jewelry that they wanted, right? right. And so in a sense, you can see how this is really a story about karma, mm -hmm. right? And how the karmic test. And so even though like the first time I read it, I was just amazed. And yes, there's the story about don't misuse a superpower, but even deeper than that, it's about how karma works. I think the great engine of karma sometimes creates situations for us in our lives that are perfectly attuned to where we are and what we need to do. And you know, this ties to my idea that if the world was a video game and if you were that was your quest or achievement, then what a perfect way <laughs> to to test out if you can, you know, master that quest or not. Absolutely. And we're going to go there, but I just wanted to take a minute to remind listeners today on the Yoga Hour, my guest is Rizwan Verk, 
His last name is V-I-R-K. He's a successful entrepreneur, investor, futurist, video game industry pioneer, indie film producer, and best-selling author. And we are discussing his new book, Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. You can find out more about Rizwan Virk and his work at his website, zenentrepreneur.com. That link will also be on our website, theyogahour.com. We welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, or you can also sign up for our mailing list. So this is great that you got to this point of talking about the video game, because this idea of this metaphor of the world as a dream or as a play has been used so often by mystics of all religions to describe the illusory nature of the world around us. And what was interesting is, is uh, in Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda modernized for that time, <laughs> this idea of life <laughs> being illusion by comparing it to a motion picture. And um, I think that you've, um, modernize it even further by comparing it to a video game. So um, would you say more about, uh, actually you write, the metaphor that makes the most sense today is that of an interactive video game. And you also say a multiplayer game is in fact the play of many individuals at the same time who agree to inhabit and play roles in a shared illusory world. Wow, this is so great. And obviously, perfect, you're the perfect person to ask about this because of your background in video games. So would you say more about this metaphor of our life as a video game? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to say a little more on, you know, Yogananda's updating the metaphors. As you mentioned, you know, the dream metaphor has been used for a long time. And in fact, you know, when uh, Prince Siddhartha became enlightened, a woman asked him, you know, what are you? And he said, I am Bhut you know, which is using an ancient Sanskrit word, which means awake, right? And so okay. he, implying that he was asleep and now he's awake and that the rest of us are still in this dream. And so, you know, these metaphors have been used, the metaphor of the play, you know, even Shakespeare, uh, you know, some 500 years ago had the famous line about all the world's sage right. and the men and women are merely players. And so, you know, when Yogananda saw the newsreel of World War One, which, as I said earlier, they didn't call it World War One. They called it the Great War because uh, it was the first mechanized war, right? So the, the level of death and suffering was much higher than in previous wars. And so, you know, he, he was asking, you know, why do you allow so much suffering, you know, in the world? And he clearly got the answer, you know, while he was meditating and through a series of visions where he saw in 3D what was happening on the battlefields. And he was told, look again. What you're seeing is a play of Charascuro. And I didn't really know what that word meant, so I had to look it up. It turns out it's an Italian art technique of light and shadow, right? Mm -hmm. And so he was told that what you're seeing is an intricate play of light and shadow and that the, you know, the actor no more dies in a motion picture uh, than when the character dies. But there is suffering in the motion picture, right? And so he used this metaphor quite a bit. And he would encourage people to look away from the screen and look towards the light of the projector. And, you know, as a kid, I used to do this when I was watching a movie like Star Wars or something. And I'd, I'd look around and you'd see everybody kind of entranced, right? But when you look away, you could actually see the flickering of the frames. Whereas when you looked at the screen, it just looks like it's continuous. And it looks like it's a real thing going on. 
And so, you know, he modernized that metaphor for good reason, and he used it to great effect, right? He would talk about that, and he would talk about the suffering of the world. And, you know, he even ended that, that, that quote, you know, was ceaseless joy is not the nature of this world, right? That there is a lot of suffering in this world, but that is the nature. But when you talk about people being hypnotized, you look at the ancient definition of Maya. We translate it as illusion into English, and that that is what it means. But it, if you look more closely, it's more like a carefully crafted illusion, right? One that you maybe buy into yourself. Like if you go to see a magic show, you know the magician is not sawing the lady in half, okay? But <laughs> you, you kind hope, of agree. Hope they're not. <laughs> you hope they're not, right? But you kind of agree to suspend disbelief because that's the fun, quote unquote, fun. Right. You know, that's the thing that makes you go, oh, what has happened? Wow, right? And so the world is like that. So I believe if Yogananda were alive today, he would say it's like a movie, but we're all actors in the movie, but we're also watching the movie. We all have a script, but we also have the choices to not follow that script or to do something else. And we're all kind of doing it together. And I, what does that sound like? It sounds like an interactive multiplayer video game, right? All and right. In, the video, in the video game world, we have a character that represents us. Like if we're all in Fortnite, World of Warcraft, or one of these games, you know, our character uh, is our, it's called an avatar. <laughs> and that's, of course, an ancient Sanskrit word, which means when divinity, divinity descends into a body. But it's an interesting that, so the guys at Lucasfilm, which is in the Bay Area, uh, you know, George Lucas's company who made Star Wars, they were creating a, a multiplayer game called Habitat back in the 80s. And they were looking for a, they had this little character on the screen that was you, and you had a little character that was somebody else. So they didn't have 3D graphics, so it was these little 2D. And they were looking for a term to describe that. And they said, well, it's kind of like we're taking our personality and we're going into the phone lines. They were using modems. Uh, and we're like inhabiting this tiny little, tiny little guy on the screen. And let's call it an avatar, right? right. Uh, which is kind of what like, you know, divinity would have to do to be in this small, tiny body. Um, and, and so that's quite interesting that they choose that term. And now we have three dimensional avatars and we have virtual worlds with millions of players and people meet their friends in these uh, environments. Right. There was a, a virtual world called Second Life where people would have a job. You have to go to this bar and be a bartender. And they'd show up at 10 at night and in addition to their real job, right? And so, you know, they have virtual relationships. And so, you know, this metaphor works, I think, in a powerful way because it shows how we may all be rendering our reality, but it also shows how reality is based on pixels, which Yogananda called, you know, light particles, right? Uh, and, and he talked about how miracles work. And he, you know, and he would talk about how uh, the yogic adepts would be able to manipulate this light, which is very similar, you know, to how, how we create video game characters and how we project those. And, you know, there are several instances of miracles. So we, I, I didn't talk about the two, two saints with two bodies, but there was one instance where, Yogananda's guru, Sri Yukteswar, was in Calcutta, and he and his uh, his roommate, Dijen, were waiting, you know, thought he was going to come on the, the 9 o'clock train. Yogananda got a message saying that oh, he was going to be on the 10 o'clock train, and Dijen didn't get the message. Uh, and he went to, you know, the, the train station at 9, and, and he didn't, you know, Yukteswar wasn't there. But Yogananda then saw Yukteswar materialize in the room 
And, you know, he, he talked about how Dijon's sight was not, you know, his mind wasn't calm enough to get the message. And because of that, he couldn't see what was being there. And then the Yogananda also felt the master's robe. And and, and Yukteswar said, well, I'm giving you this experience, which is rare in the physical world, uh, to actually see me materialize. He didn't say why, but we learn why later, I think, because he wanted, you know, when Yogananda came to the West and told these crazy stories, he wanted to be able to say that he had seen something like that himself. Right. Uh, but right. but now the way that video games work is you and I could be in the same room, just like I'm not really talking to you now, right? I'm talking to my computer, right? Transforming right. it into bits, and that, and then my voice is being rendered on your computer, right? Right. And Absolutely. same thing. But there's no guarantee that we're seeing exactly what the other person is seeing. Like in right. Zoom, I could change my background, right? And you would think maybe I was sitting you know, by the bay, but I'm actually inside. I mean, this is actually where I'm sitting. But, uh, and so in a video game, you can render things. Uh, like there's a scene where uh, Babaji visits Lahiri Mahashai and Yukteswar is there and Yukteswar didn't see him. And Lahiri tells him, well, you didn't see him because your gaze is not yet faultless. Well, you can make the analogy in a video game when you're a level 30 player, you can see like dragons flying or you can see a magic spell or invisible beings, but a level two player can't see it and would say, it's not there. It's not there on my screen, but of course they're rendering it on their device and you're rendering it on your device. And so it gives us a way and it bridges the gap. And and one of the things Yogananda did is he he talked about modern science during his day. Uh, and, you know, he has interviews with a few scientists in India, and the U.S., like Luther Burbank. And, um, but today, this idea that we might live in a computer simulation is one that you can actually take two scientists and you can actually discuss this idea. Because, you know, many scientists have a, either a, a default of being an atheist these days, right? Or even if they're not an atheist, you know, that's kind of what they have to present to the rest of the scientific world. Uh, right. But when they start to consider that we might be inside a computer simulation, right? That this is not real, but it's a game that we're playing. Then they say, well, you know, anybody that's outside the simulation would seem to us like supernatural beings perhaps, right? And so for that reason, uh, it it becomes a powerful metaphor. And it's a metaphor that young people can understand today. I mean, I've had people, you know, write to me from India since this book came out. Uh, and even a few podcasters, they're like, yeah, you know, I tried to read Autobiography of Yogi. It was too long, too many stories. But now that I've read your book, I didn't really understand how significant, you know, this was because it was, you know, one of the most passed around books of like the counterculture. In fact, that's when the book really took off was during the 60s and 70s. Um, and I was on a podcast the other day from a guy who was a, a doctor a resident at Stanford in San Francisco, but he also spent time in the 60s at Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco in kind of the hippie the hippie times. And he said, that's how he got it. Someone just gave him the copy and they kept passing around, you know, copies of this book and understanding, you know, the significant impact it had on that generation. A lot of younger people today, what happened with that generation, the boomers then passed it on to my generation, like Gen Xers, because they were our spiritual mentors. And so, you know, they passed it on to us, but it hasn't kind of, I think it hasn't filtered its way so much down to the TikTok generation. And, but, you know, I'm hoping that by using this analogy of video games, it becomes an easier way. And many people bought my previous book, The Simulation Hypothesis, because their kids asked them, 
are we living in a simulation? I'm like, I don't know. Let's go find a book and see if we can <laughs> look into it. <laughs> yeah, for sure. In Autobiography of a Yogi, Yogananda wrote, yoga cannot know a barrier of East and West any more than does the healing and equitable light of the sun. So long as man possesses a mind with its restless thoughts, so long will there be a universal need for yoga. Such a beautiful, you know, way of describing the appeal, I think, of yoga, international appeal of yoga, universal appeal. Um, but also him as a figure, um, thinking about what kinds of things he uh, brought with him from the East, which is a lot of what you talk about in your book. So what key gifts did Yogananda bring with him from the East? Well, you know, so Yogananda is an interesting figure, right? Because he was an immigrant, <laughs> which many of us were in, in America, but lived here all his life. And, you know, most immigrants come over and then they in the U.S. and they become kind of acclimated to the culture. And as they become U.S. citizens, you know, they, they really consider this their home. Uh, and for Yogananda, this was his home, right? This is where he lived most of his adult life. But then it's the children of the immigrants, like myself and many others who tend to be kind of a mix, right? Uh, kind of an authentic mix of East and West. And obviously Yogananda was a Swami and he didn't have any children, but he had his literary children, right? <laughs> which were right. his writings, which was like the autobiography. And so, you know, th that book itself uh, was one of the reasons why it was touted was it was one of the few books at that point available in the West that was actually written by an authentic yogi, you know, who right. lived the life. And so he was authentically there and he was also authentically here. And Yogananda is also an interesting example of what scholars call the pizza effect you know, which I talk about in the book when I interviewed religious uh, studies professors. And the pizza effect is basically saying like pizza comes from a small region in Italy, I think near Napoli. But like the original thing of pizza is not like what we call pizza. It's just some bread with a little bit of sauce on it. But when, when it came here to America, it transformed into what we think of as an Italian pizza, right. which is, you know, the, the modern dish of pizza, which Probably, unfortunately, I ate too many of in my younger days. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and, and of course, I still love, but although I don't eat it as much anymore. <laughs> but and then that traveled back to Italy. So when you go to Italy now and you order pizza, you're actually ordering something that's a blend of the original pizza with the American idea of pizza. And that's because and Yogananda has become that way because he's gone back now. In, right. in you know, metaphorically, he went back once during his life, but metaphorically he's as popular in india but he adapted you know his stories and his techniques uh, so that they would appeal to a western audience and i feel like that you know was an important part of his life task uh and you know the yoga i mean he tells us this in the autobiography it gets lost with all of the uh the the stories of the you know the miracles right and you know palaces materializing in the Himalayas, right? All of these kinds of stories. Uh, but but he, he, he takes us back to Patanjali's definition of yoga, which, you know, in the Sanskrit was yoga, chitta vritti, naroda, naroda, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it, that often gets translated to stopping the, you know, the waves of consciousness. There are different interpretations, but I kind of went back to different translations and, uh, kind of reassembled them into one that I think makes a little more sense for modern readers, which is yoga is about stopping the whirlpools 
of thoughts and feelings in the river of consciousness, right? right? And, you know, that's where the vrittis, they take such an important role, which means whirlpool in Sanskrit, right? But whirlpool of what exactly? And we often translate it into just thoughts, but it's, it's not just thoughts, right? It's about our emotions and our desires and our attachments, right. which causes these whirlpools, these vrittis to harden into samskaras and then they become part of our energy field they become part of our karma and so if yoga is about the cessation of those i like to use the analogy of a snow globe right where if you shake up the snow globe and this is something they don't probably don't have snow globes in india but <laughs> we have them here you know i grew up in michigan which was snowing you know every uh, <laughs> every winter but if you shake it up you can't see what's going on and, and that's right. like the storm of rittis that's going on all the time and so yoga you know today we think of yoga as being more of like the asanas, which of course was only one of the eight limbs of yoga, the yoga poses. Uh, we've often stripped it of its spiritual content. Right. And of course, there are there are real benefits, health benefits, right? And Yogananda wasn't above talking about those to to get people interested. But you know, as you know, the autobiography doesn't contain any asanas or any right. of what we consider yoga today. It's more about the ancient definition of yoga. And so, basically, this idea of calming our minds. You know, so any practice, and one of the lessons that I really draw out, and uh, you know, even even Lahiri, you know, would say, you know, if you're a Muslim, do your do your uh, prayer, worship your namaz. If you're a Christian, is like any practice that helps you calm these things right. is a type of yoga, and I think that is you know part of that East and West, right? It's in the West, it's been so much left right now. I, I start the book. And I think I end the book with a quote from Rudyard Kipling, who said, East is East and West is West and never the twain shall meet. And I say that that quote is relevant for not being relevant at all anymore. Right. right because right. we're so interconnected in the world. I mean, in the softer world, I will work with people in Bangalore, you know, just as much as I would work with people in New York or Los Angeles, you know, within the industry. And so we're so connected. The cultures, uh, you know, it's so easy for things to travel with YouTube videos and everything else. Uh, you know, I mean, at the time, Yogananda said, you know, you had to be hardy. He had to, he had to be hardiest, uh, hardier, you know, than braving the, the Himalayan snows if he was to brave the materialistic West, right? And so that was kind of the, the impression. But of course, you'll find more materialism, you know, on the streets of Mumbai or Shanghai <laughs> than you will uh, today. You'll probably have more people looking for yoga and escapes in the West than, than you might even in, in some of these Eastern places uh, because the cultures have become so intertwined. And so it's, you know, uh, what Babaji said to uh, Yukteswar when he first met him, uh, which was at the Kumbha Mela in Allahabad, which they hold every 12 years or so. And and he called him Swamiji. And, you know, of course, you've just watched that. I'm not a Swami. He said, oh, don't worry. <laughs> you will be. You will be. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and, and, you know, Yukteswar was saying, well, you know, the men of the West have figured out all these scientific innovations. And they're putting their minds to good use. And a lot of just, you know, people here are like these dirty sadhus and we're not really applying ourselves <laughs> in the way. And it was Babaji who, you know, who said that, you know, uh, that East and West was, must find a golden middle path, right, mm -hmm. of stillness and of activity. If you want to use kind of the stereotypical, right, the right. stereotypical of, of the advances right. in science and technology. But, you know, India has had this spiritual science for so long. And I think that's that's come out now, right? We talk about yoga being... Uh, pretty common now. Mindfulness is taught within companies like Google, 
and within HR, and they're starting to recognize the benefits of calming our minds, right? And it, what's interesting to me is is that the real purpose of the autobiography was not to teach people Kriya Yoga. You know, I mean, you have to go and you have to find someone to do that, but it was to inspire people to get on whatever whatever spiritual path they're on. I mean, Steve Jobs, as I mentioned, it was a hugely influential book for him, but but he didn't practice Kriya Yoga necessarily. You know, he practiced the kind of Zen meditation, but, it, you know, George Harrison, right, was a big fan. He used to give out copies to everybody he thought needed a regrooming, to use the terminology of the day, right? And and he studied with, you know, uh, one of the other guys in, in Rishikesh, but it, it was more about inspiring people. And I think that's what Yogananda did was he inspired people to start to explore the inner spaces. And that is, you know, traditionally the domain of the East. And so so I think, you know, uh, taking the advancements we have here, as well as the advancements that have been learned over years and combining them, that it was part of his mission in life. And, you know, that's part of the reason why I've written this book and I've written some previous books is, uh, you know, there, we want to find a bridge between these because too often, along with you know, uh, scientific and material advancement comes this sort of uh, secularism right. in such a way that denies that there is anything beyond the physical world, right. which leaves out the possibility of consciousness, leaves out the idea of reincarnation, leaves out so many things. But by by using these metaphors and Yogananda building on what, so the task that Babaji gave to Yukteswar that day was to write a book to show some of the uh, similarities between the Christian scriptures uh, and uh, you know the Hindu uh, Vedas, and which Yukteswar did, and the book is still available today as the Holy Science. Right. And Yogananda, you know, referenced the Bible as much in in his autobiography. I remember reading and thinking, why is he referencing the Bible so much, right? But but you know, he was part of that tradition that wanted to bridge that gap, and and this was of course primarily a Christian country at the time especially in the 1920s, right? There's a picture of Yogananda with his long hair standing outside in winter in Boston, you know, saying, you know, Swami Yogananda teaches. And he, he used to get jeers from kids passing him and other people being this brown guy with funny hair, wearing a funny robe, you know, back in the 1920s. But but that was his mission and that was his life task. And, and he embodied that, I think, in the best way. And, oh, and I think today today today's generation should appreciate that as much as the uh, previous ones so great. I really appreciate your bringing in uh, the uh, definition of yoga from uh, from Patanjali's Yoga Sutra, um, because that's so much about what this program is about, you know, is really to expand people's understanding of what is yoga. And as I, as I said at the beginning, our first like tagline is to explore the depth and breadth of yoga. And it's fantastic. I mean, how much it contains that is so far beyond what is taught in the average yoga class. <laughs> so uh, unbelievably, this time has just flown by, but we've come to the end of our session. I've so enjoyed this conversation. In closing, what words of encouragement or inspiration would you like to leave with our listeners? Well, I'd like to impart something, a lesson about video games that we can all apply to our life. And so, you know, kind of the grandfather of the video game industry was a guy named Nolan Bushnell, who started Atari. When I was a kid, I used to play, you know, Space Invaders and Pac-Man on my Atari system at home. And, you know, uh, he would always tell his designers the key to a good game. And he said the key to a good game is make it easy to play but difficult to master. Right? Uh, and I would say that's a great metaphor for life, the game of life. It's easy to play. You're here. You don't have to do anything. 
it's difficult to master. We have so many challenges along the way, but it's those challenges that add, the, I think, the texture and the spice and make you know the treasure hunt, uh, like an Indiana Jones film, much more interesting. Uh, and so, you know, just keep that in mind when you're playing the game of life. Mm, great message. For listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of The Yoga Hour, and my guest today has been Rizwan Verk, author of the book we've been discussing today, Wisdom of a Yogi, Lessons for Modern Seekers from Autobiography of a Yogi. You can find out more about Rizwan Verk and his work at his website, zenentrepreneur.com. This link will be on our website, along with this podcast, um, at theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Rizvan Verk, for joining me today on the podcast. Thanks for having me on. Again, for listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs that are offered by the Center of, for Spiritual Enlightenment, which is the sponsor of this program. There's daily online meditation in the mornings, 6.30 a.m. Pacific, afternoons at 4, and Monday evenings at 7.30. Again, all those times are Pacific time. There's also a Sunday satsang. Uh, it's a Sanskrit word that means a gathering of truth seekers. That happens at 10 a.m. Pacific each Sunday. If you are enjoying this podcast, you might also check out another podcast, the Kriya Yoga Today podcast with uh, Reverend or Yogacharya, Ellen Grace O'Brien. Um, you can get that through the CSE website at csecenter.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, that's Kriya Yoga Today. Um, next time on the Yoga Hour, I will have as my guest Kabir Helminski to discuss his book, The Mysterion, Rumi and the Essence of Being Human. The Yoga Hour is a service project of the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show. If you're enjoying it, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, Christine Sote, and Lauren Leidinger. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>